0: Welcome to Behavior Grooves, the podcast that explores human behavior through a behavioral science lens. I'm Kurt. And I'm Tim. We like to explore why we
1: do what we do with researchers, authors, and practitioners in a conversational setting
0: in order to bring those insights to you. And today we're talking with a practitioner that we've been friends with for a few years. His name is Jonathan Mann, and we first met him when he moved to Minneapolis and joined Target Corporation to lead their user experience team. He saw that we hosted a meetup, and he was volunteering to share some behavioral insights with us.
1: Yeah, and in our first conversation with Jonathan, I was ecstatic to learn that he is an excellent amateur fingerstyle guitarist. Oh, okay, don't. All guitar
0: players use their fingers,
1: Tim. Well, yeah, yes, okay, but the term fingerstyle refers to how you pluck the strings of the uh, with your fingers of your right hand. It's it's you know some people use a pick, but fingerstyle means that you're plucking
0: the strings with your right hand, and it's just more difficult than strumming. Okay. I, I, I can't even strum, so I can only <laughs> imagine, right? All right. So we wanted to talk with Jonathan about a presentation that he shared at Nudge it North. For those of you who weren't able to join us at Nudge it North, Jonathan's presentation was called, Can You Design an Experience? And he used Jimi Hendrix's band, The Experience, as a metaphor.
1: Yeah, so we started talking with Jonathan about this idea of designing an experience and whether it's even possible to design an experience. So Jonathan offered up a definition
0: of an experience that we can measure it by. Jonathan said that an experience is really three parts. The first part is anticipation. Experiences are often things that we anticipate, and we sort of get ready for them even before the experience itself. The second part is the experience itself. And the third part is how we remember that experience.
1: Yeah, and all three of these combined to truly make an experience for us. So when Jonathan wondered if it's possible to actually design an experience, well, he was taking all those into consideration and he basically
0: said, no. So we went on to discuss the parts of the experience that he could influence and how he worked with Robert Cialdini to come up with some interventions that really, really worked well. In fact, they work so well, Jonathan started to wonder if they were even ethical. Yeah, and it turned out that everything they were doing was completely above board, uh, but it was really cool that he asked. And we want to note that the music you're going to hear on this episode is played by Jonathan. We hope you enjoy it while you sit back and relax with a six-string experience. Enjoy our conversation with Jonathan Mann.
1: Jonathan Mann, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Thank you so much, it's a pleasure to be
0: here. Pleasure to be back and we're glad you're in studio this time, well, virtual studio. Virtual studio. (laughs) But last time we we had you on, but you were presenting at one of our meetups and we took that recording. So this is an actual time where we get to ask you questions and and you get to seal the whole experience of a Behavioral Grooves podcast. How about that?
2: I am super excited. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I can tell. <laughs> you can tell
0: with that. That one. so. So let's start with that. Uh, that experience with our our famous speed round. All right, Tim, yeah. do you wanna? Do you wanna go? Sure, sure. Uh, Jonathan,
1: coffee or tea? Both. Both is time of day,
0: day of the
2: I'll week. Morning tea for lunch.
0: Wow. Okay. Hey Tim, I'm gonna throw you for a loop. I'm gonna ask three, so you can ask two. All right, when we go back here, so uh jonathan what was your first outside the home paid job
2: i was a paper boy starting at about age nine wow
0: a morning uh paper or an afternoon paper
2: yeah after after school on the weekdays and then the morning sunday morning morning
0: sunday morning those are those are early early mornings for uh for kids on on those days my friend had one and i would help him out every once in a while and i would never do the sunday morning it was too hard Hmm. I I would never do that job anyway.
2: (laughs) Thinking back on it, having kids do that job, I remember I used to have to, like, every week go door-to-door to to collect cash money from my customers. This kid was knocking on doors in the evening. I don't know if they would have people do that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, Uh, next speed round question. Which do you prefer, E major or E minor?
2: Ooh, that's a good question. I guess it just depends on the mood. If I'm feeling bluesy, it's the minor. If I'm feeling country, it's the major. Mm-hmm.
0: Fantastic. We're, we'll come back to that later. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Is it possible for user experience designers to actually design an experience for a user?
2: I am glad you asked. <laughs> because the answer is, not really. And <laughs> okay. Yeah, really. Well, We'll talk about that more.
0: Yeah. So this was you. You spoke at Nudge It North, and this was the topic of your discussion: is this idea of you know can can people can designers design an, uh, an experience? And so, what got you thinking about this topic? What was the impetus for you to go?
2: Hmm. Yeah. It's interesting because I've been thinking about this for many years, and this is this was actually a. a a gratifying presentation for me to give because because I've been thinking about it for a number of years and I couldn't figure out exactly how to get these thoughts out of my mind. <clears throat> but I've been a user experience designer slash user experience leader for many many years, um, you know, fifteen or so, fifteen or so years, and it struck me that we have this thing in our title, um, user experience designer, and there are other experience designers, there's customer experience and enterprise experience, et cetera, but we all have this thing in our title, experience designers. And I'm like, is that something you can really do? And one of the things that I did um, at one point was I asked a bunch of people on my team what is experience? Like, what is, what is the word experience? We have this thing in our title experience designer. Like what is this thing that we're supposedly designing? <clears throat> and a couple of the answers I got were: an experience is something you go through. It's a process or an event. Uh, another person said it's a collection of impressions that are taken in by your senses. As you move through time. Another person said, it's a series of events that a person has put through. Um, that can lead to a feeling that's either positive or negative. So, and and I have 10 or a dozen of these. And so, as you could tell, it's interesting because there's not really a common definition of experience if you ask a whole bunch of people that. And, well, that's interesting. Well, these aren't just random people. These are people on your team,
1: right? These are people that are actually doing the work. Of designing user experiences,
2: right? Exactly, and so so it's it was it was striking to me that we supposedly have this job, and you know, unlike an interior designer, for example, like you know the kind of kind of a good definition of what that is, um, but an experience designer, and then and then you know, if you think about some of these definitions, one thing that they do have in common, um, some of those ones that I just rattled through, is they're talking about this internal feeling that you have and um, if you think about it more, like you know can you design something that is going to be the way f- somebody reacts internally? <clears throat> and in my opinion and we could talk about the reason I feel this way, in my opinion, the answer is no. you can what you can do is you can design the potential. For an experience. And you know, theoretically, what you're trying to do is not just design an experience, but you know, hopefully a good experience. So you can design the potential for that. But you can't design the experience itself because that is something that's, well, it's experienced by, you know, it's an internal thing. It's not, it's not an external thing that you can design like whatever, like a, you know, like a like a like a product. You can design the product and there it is, but you can't design the actual experience.
0: So go talk a little bit more about the internal nature of that. Like why is it that that you don't think we can have the internal experience designed um, for that? Help us help help expand that.
2: Yeah, sure. So, um, um, you know, as you guys know, because I've talked to you about it and I attend your wonderful meetups. We we as human beings have irrational minds, right? Like we don't <clears throat> we don't all perceive the world the same way, and we don't always perceive the world as you know you would expect it to happen, and. Um, uh, Dan Gilbert wrote a great book, Stumbling on Happiness, which is, you know, it was, a, it was a best-selling book. And I stole one of his quotes in my presentation, which I, I don't know if this is, these are the exact words, but, um, but it's something like, we misperceive the present, we misremember the past. And there's one other one to it, which I sorry. I <laughs> we'll look it up. We can look it up. But 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 essentially what he's saying is is that um, and and you know this this is this is one of the foundations for my, my thinking around it is that um, you're in the present moment and we as human beings will misperceive like what's right in front of us. So that's one of the reasons that it's it's difficult to impossible to, to design an experience, because you're going to misperceive it. And then another quality of an experience is <clears throat> your memory of that experience. And one of the important things about that is that we don't always remember things the way they actually were. So we if the fact that we're misremembering it means that. This experience that we supposedly have, you're not going to remember it just like, you know, like a movie that was in front of you. It's going to, it's going to vary over time. <clears throat> and then similarly, your expectations about it, you're going to think about the future and it's going to be, it's not going to be exactly how you anticipate it. So all of those things conspire to make it difficult or impossible to design something predictably that somebody's going to experience and remember the way you want it to happen.
1: So what is your job? then? If, 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 you, if you have this title, <laughs> yep. leading a, a group of people who are supposed to be user experience designers, what are you actually trying to do?
2: So like I said earlier, what we really are trying to do is increase the potential for a good experience. And so maybe that's splitting hairs with some people. And indeed, you know, I myself just continue to call ourselves experience designers, you know, but <clears throat> if you were to really make our job title accurate we would be called um i guess it would be potential user experience yeah yeah not not ux
1: not ex not uh, cx no, it would be pux yeah, yeah. I, I think that that that's a pretty great way of thinking about it the uh so something that you 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 brought up here is that we have these misperceptions, uh, past, present, mm-hmm. and future. And yet your task, you're you're tasking your team with trying to create the potential for something. How are you going about that? what 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 do you think are the best practices around trying to guide and create that potential user experience? Mm-hmm.
2: Well, let me, let me like back up just a little bit before I answer that directly. So, so one, of the, one of the concepts that, that I learned as I researched this topic quite a bit was um, it's a fallacy to think about um, an experience as being just the present moment. Like, you know, we're, you know, the three of us are having an experience right now and we're in the present moment right, right now, but our totality of this experience needs to be thought of as both uh, as the anticipation of it. So we're thinking about it and we're, we're, you know, having thoughts and fears and whatever about the experience we're about to have, then we're having the experience itself. And then we're going to have a memory of the experience and, um, I believe that the experience is a conglomeration of all of those three things. So it's the anticipation, it's the experience itself, and it's the memory. <clears throat> and the most important part of it as an experience designer or a potential user experience designer is to, con- to focus on having a good memory of the experience, because that's what you're going to take away. And if you think about doing things like driving engagement and hoping that people will come back to Experience it again. Um, you mostly want them to have a good memory of of the experience. So that would be <clears throat> skipping to the end. That would be my advice. You know, for thinking about a, you know a, being a, a great potential user experience designer is to focus on the memory.
0: Yeah, cool. Wh- which is different than focusing in on that present moment. And I. We've talked about this in the past, but there's this idea, and, and I use this example of going camping, right? You, you, you anticipate, you, you plan for your camping trip, you, you, you get excited about it, you're getting all your gear ready, kind of anticipating this wonderful camping experience, hiking, canoeing, whatever it is that you're doing then you actually have the experience and the experience can be wonderful, or it could be rainy and cold and miserable (laughs) during that time. Right. Yep. But, but then you remember afterwards and, and and the memory doesn't necessarily always correlate to the actual experience that, that memory of, you know, I I will recall this for the rest of my life is, uh, you know, we went, we went to the boundary waters with my family and, you know, it rained. It was literally, you know, we, 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 canoed to the campsite we were setting up our tents quickly because it started to sprinkle and then is luckily we got the the tents up and it rained pretty much the entire time until we we left 3 days later right um, but it was wonderful in in memory because we sat around the campfire we read harry potter out loud we we did all of these things in the moment i'm sure it, we were miserable you know it was cold it was uh, but what we remember are those moments that we we take out. And so it, it's a very different experience of that you have. So you can you can take a, a horrible experience and actually the memory of it can can be good. So I now ask you you're not trying to create horrible experiences that have, <laughs> oh, yeah. have good memories, right? You, but you're trying to look at that memory from, or the, the remembered part of this this more than just the experience part. Is that, is that what I take away?
2: Exactly. Yeah, I mean, of course, you want to, you know, design the present moment that the person's going to go through um, to be as good as possible, or potentially as as good as possible. And you know, there are heuristics and best practices for for that. You know, and user experience designers are great at that. You know, and you know, making things uh, usable and easy to understand, et, et, et cetera. But it's important for for experience designers to keep in mind that what you think people are going to experience may not be that exact thing. And then to your point, Kurt, um, they may remember it very differently than they actually experienced it. And, you know, you gave, you gave a good example and, and that's, in, that's indeed very true. And that, that was actually one of the things that <clears throat> that I learned uh, from, from one of my articles, which, you know, I think you guys are going to give a reference in, in, your, in your notes, um, was that, anticipation often drives memory so Mm -hmm. you know in your boundary waters example you likely had uh, like this amazing anticipation of a great experience then you didn't have the greatest experience but you remembered it similarly to your anticipation and um that was that was uh, that that was that's a common human trait and you know the example I give when in my presentation is of a wedding so same thing as what you described like you'll imagine your wedding you'll anticipate your wedding to be this wonderful thing where it's a beautiful spring day and everybody's smiling and you know the flowers are perfect and the food is perfect and everybody has a wonderful time but what really happens is, you know, your uncle Fred takes too much prime rib, and you know, <laughs> cake falls over, and you know, somebody's phone rings during the ceremony, you know, th- all those things happen. But your memory will probably revert to something closer to what you anticipated, just like what you described.
1: Yeah. I I wanted to roll back the the pages a, a few years. You've been doing user experience work for for many years. You worked with Target. You worked with PayPal, and you you actually did some research with with Robert Cialdini, yep. and <clears throat> and I, I've got two questions along these lines, Jonathan. One is what got you interested in applying behavioral science to your work, and then how did you connect it get connected with this. Um, this ASU uh, God of research, you know?
2: (laughs) Yeah, well, that's one of my favorite stories because that's what got me into behavioral design in the first place. So um, what this was at when I was at PayPal, we were we were looking uh, I won't go too deep into 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 it, but we were looking to drive a certain behavior for how, you know, how people would use their PayPal account. And we were getting very frustrated because me and my team, we did a great job, you know, not to tutor our own horns, but we did a great job at designing the the flow to do this to be as easy as possible. and indeed, that did drive quite a bit of of conversion, you know conversion being you know you you people that completed this this flow. <clears throat> but, you know just to state the obvious you can't you can't complete a flow you can't complete a task if you don't start it and we were struggling you know we so once once somebody started the task we had a lot of success in getting more of them to finish it but what we didn't do was get people to start the task in the first place and you can't do that through user experience design that's that's a behavioral nudge and um we tried all sorts of things the marketing team and I to try to get people to take that step and what we were doing you know as as you guys very well know we were we were doing the uh, we were we were doing system two um, um, design we were giving people a lot of facts and wow. hoping that those facts would drive their behavior and we just tried all these experiments these a B tests, multivariate tests and none of them worked because we kept throwing facts at people and people were just like, whatever, I'm, you know, I'm going to go my merry way because your facts are not compelling. And so then I read this article, um, by, by Cialdini, his his famous towel experiment that he did in Phoenix, in a Phoenix hotel. And, um, I'm assuming you don't want me to go too deep into that. Uh, (laughs) I think,
0: well, you know, for for people, it was basically saying, look, it was pure uh, looking at at peer norms and saying, hey, people in this hotel room reuse their towels 70 some percent, and you got a much higher. Uh, use of reusing the, those those towels than you did if it was just a general reuse or if you use some other messaging like how good this is for the environment
2: et cetera. So, right, exactly. And um, um, I stumbled across that that article, and when I when I read it, I had this weird revelation: is like you know this is. First of all, it's fascinating, and but moreover, this is kind of like what we're trying to do at PayPal because we're trying to get people to do this a little bit of extra work. You know, in this case, like hang their towel back up instead of instead of dropping it on the floor, and um, and on the surface, it's good for the business, right? Like, in, you know, the hotels want you to reuse your towel. <laughs> ostensibly for environmental reasons, but they also probably save money because it's less laundering costs, et cetera, less work for, less work for their staff. Um, similarly, you know, this, this, this behavior that we wanted for PayPal was also good for the user, but it was also good for PayPal. And so I, I just made this weird connection is like this towel thing is kind of similar to what we wanted to do at PayPal. And, um, at the time, I was living in Arizona, and you know, as you noted, uh, Cialdini is from Arizona State University. So, I just kind of looked him up, like I I stalked him on the web, and I found his email, and I sent him an email. I'm like, hey, you know, I got this thing I want to do. I'm with PayPal, and you know, I'd like to do an experiment and talk to you about your towel thing and see if we can do that at PayPal. And to my surprise and delight, he wrote me back, you know, the next day, and. I took him to lunch and we talked about it. And um, I didn't work directly with him. I worked with one of his associates and we put together some verbiage, primarily using his social proof concept, but also using a bit of authority uh, too. And long story short was it was wildly successful and drove millions of dollars in profit. And that made me (laughs) a believer. Wow. Wow. So it,
1: it you were would you would it be fair to say you were skeptical in advance of that?
2: Um I don't know about skeptical because, you know, I obviously initiated it and and I saw the success that he had with the towel thing, but I can tell you that certainly my coworkers were super skeptical. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and um um I was actually really amazed by the results. And one, one of the things that was, that was really amazing was not only did it drive the behavior right away, <clears throat> but the behavior stuck with people longer term. So like it was this kind of seeding of this information. Um, um, it got people to do the behavior, but it got them like, if you looked at them longitudinally, it, it got them to stick with the behavior longer term as compared to people that didn't see that message. So, I thought that was fascinating also and and unexpected.
0: Yeah. yeah. So, Jonathan, you've been using then behavioral science as part of your repertoire as a, as a potential uh, user designer, experience designer, right? So, when you're thinking about this new concept that you have, right, of looking at we really need to be thinking about the memory aspect of it. Are there any, any behavioral science principles that you are finding work better in this area? Is this something that you're still exploring? What are you finding in that, that area?
2: Um, it's something I'm still exploring. Um, um, in the talk that I gave, I gave a few tips for, for that. One is probably very well known to people, and and indeed, I think it it has become more of the repertoire of experienced designers, which is you know the peak end rule. So, um, ending with a bang, you know, ending with an awesome experience can often make up for you know fair to middling experience beforehand, and usually has the effect of a good memory of the experience. So, like thinking of your boundary waters. Um, like even if it was raining the whole time, if towards the end the sun came out and you know you caught a fish or something, like <laughs> that would that would make the entire experience seem great in 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 your memory. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You know. um, yeah. What else? Yeah. Can it, it keep if you could keep going, that'd be great. Can I continue to share these tips.
2: Sure. Um, so another which I thought was interesting is to add uncertainty which you know is is sort of counterintuitive yeah but um but there have been a few experiments around this and um um one for example is like you know thinking about like a secret admirer right if you have if you get like a note from saying like oh you know i think you're pretty cute and it says a secret admirer um that gives you more like long-lasting kind of happiness and pleasure than if the person like reveals themselves to you. So there's like, what happens according to these studies is like people tend to keep thinking about them and remember them more positively because they're thought of as rare and unusual. And there's this little unfinished business that keeps things circulating in, in your mind. So having, having a bit of uncertainty can, can sometimes drive a positive experience and a, and a memory of that too.
0: Yeah, that's almost like the Zagarnik effect, which is that the the unfinished part, right? So the this idea of, you know, um, Hemingway would always famously end his writing sessions mid sentence because he didn't finish that, and so then overnight his brain is working on how are we completing that sentence, and there's lots of research that points to. Unfinished things get more processing in our subconscious and various different aspects of that. So, sounds like uh, this uncertainty aspect, the secret admirer piece, is your your brain is trying to figure out what is what is going on and and actually continuing to process that more so than they would if it was oh it's Jane or it's Tom or whoever it would be. That's final. I get it. I know. I make an opinion of it, but you know, secret admirer. Could be, could be Tom, could be Jane, could be, you know, Brad Pitt. For all we know, who knows, right? So, yeah, exactly,
1: exactly. <laughs> what else? What, what? What other? What other tips do you want to share with us?
2: So another another thing that I came across, which I found was fascinating, was <clears throat> this isn't necessarily to drive a good memory, but it's just to drive the memory in and of in and of itself. <clears throat> was to avoid asking people to explain the experience after afterwards. And so there was a fascinating study where, you know, those kind of paint chips that you get um, mm-hmm. you know, at, at the paint store. So people were shown whatever it is, let's say yellow, they were shown a, sh- a shade of yellow and then they were asked to pick you know that shade of yellow from a from a scattering of paint chips that were in front of them, and those who were first asked to describe that yellow, you know, whatever it's light or dark or mustardy or whatever, um, did worse than those who were not asked to describe it. So somehow the act of describing it could somehow overwrite the experience itself. So as you're describing this thing which we've already talked about is a bit ephemeral and often misperceived it you will sometimes write in your brain the wrong memory and then you know as you're describing it it becomes implanted as the wrong memory.
0: Wow, I, th- that's an another interesting fact like you think about wouldn't you want people to to go back and to rethink about that and to to reframe that? But to your point, right? That it it overrides, and if it's wrong, and if it's in the negative perspective, that's a that's a bad thing to happen. Oh, yeah, cool.
1: There was there was some work in in Germany a bunch of years ago when uh, researchers asked married couples. To reflect individually, they they gave one group uh, 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 the task of list uh, fifteen things that you absolutely adore about your your partner, and they gave another group uh, list three things that you absolutely adore about your partner, and then and then they had another group. They said list. 15 things that you absolutely hate about your partner. And then another group was list three things that you absolutely hate about your partner. And the people who were at, were tasked with listing 15 positive things had a higher divorce rate than those who only had to list three things because they got to three, four, five, six, um, seven, eight. <laughs> and they 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 really felt like, wow, I don't have 15 really great things to say about my partner maybe I shouldn't be married. And and the ones who actually listed 15 things that they really hate were like, well, this is just life. You know, they, you know. So, so it, it had a, it had a weird effect of, of tasking people with, with things that should be positive ended up actually having, you know, to, to reflect back and to have these memories actually had a, a counterintuitive effect. So I, I think that this is a really astute, astute thing that you've integrated into this list, Jonathan. I that, that's what I'm saying.
2: Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. And this is me just totally making this up, you know, as you're talking, but, (laughs) but I wonder, I wonder if like kind of related to what you were saying, I wonder if, um, describing the experience can somehow like mitigate what we talked about with the peak end rule, right? Like if you experience the peak end rule and you just let it fly, then people are going to have this wonderful memory of their experience, which, you know, may, may or may not have been, Uniformly wonderful, but if you're asked to go back and think about it, then oh yeah, I remember it was actually raining, and I remember <laughs> getting eaten up by mosquitoes. And um, then it becomes not so great. And you know, the act of having you describe it was probably
0: um, reinforcing the more accurate view of those neg- of, of my my trip. Right, this idea that if I would have had to write a little essay about the trip immediately following that camping trip might have implanted more of the actual negative aspects in my brain as opposed to letting some time pass where all of a sudden what I remember is just that, hey, yeah, it was, It actually it was sunny when we left and it was, you know, nice. And I could remember those good, the, the peak parts, as you said, you know, the reading of of Harry Potter and, and doing those types of things. So, again, counterintuitive. And that's, I think, what the real interesting piece here is, is that, and and what I think behavioral science points out. And this is why it's so fascinating for, for Tim and me to to talk to people about this, because you would you would assume you would make assumptions on a on a number of these things. And yet the way that our brain operates and the way that we then behave subsequently is not always the way that you make that assumption up front. And so this is why I think behavioral science is so fascinating. and 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 why I'm so glad that you are. Integrating behavioral science
1: into your work, uh, I think that it's really important. For the, the kind of work that you're doing, has a huge impact on lots and lots of people, right? Because when you're designing products, you're influencing, well, in in PayPal's experience, millions of people, right? With Target, millions of people, and uh, it, it's it's really great that you. Care about it in this regard, and that, and I also know this about you: is that you have a very ethical approach to the application of behavioral science as well. Uh, but, but maybe you could talk about that. You, you've got this very powerful wand with behavioral science to do good or evil, but you continue to choose to do
2: good. what I hope I, hope I hope I do. <laughs> I hope I do. <clears throat> um, yeah, it was, it was interesting. Um, when, um, you know, you, you had talked about that meeting that I had with with Robert Cialdini, um, I asked him that very question. And as you guys will know, I, di- I didn't know this at the time. But as you guys will know, he thinks about ethics quite a bit. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in his latest book, he devoted several chapters to that. And <clears throat> um, so when we talked about the concept of what we were going to do, I asked him that is like, you know, is, is this ethical if we if we kind of nudge people, you know, using these, this dark magic that, you know, you've written about. <laughs> and um, he didn't hesitate in answering because, he, you know, he's obviously thought about it quite a bit. And, you know, he said a lot of things, but in general, what one of the key things that he said is that if it's true, it's likely ethical. So, you know, thinking about social proof, um, if you tell somebody that, you know, millions of other people like you have done this thing and that's a true statement, then there's probably no ethical violation going on there. And in fact, it's probably useful information for you because, like, if you're worried about taking this step and you see, well, you know, tens of millions of people like me did this thing. And, you know, I haven't heard about some calamity to those tens of millions of people, then that's probably useful information to you. But, you know, you know, I'm sure you guys have seen this too. There's often the unethical application of that where tens of millions of people really didn't do that. Like maybe 10 people did that. And that's, <laughs> that's too false information. And that's, that's, that's an obviously obvious ethical violation. Yeah.
0: That's, that's why we don't tell, you know, the 10 million, you know, listeners that we have about the 10 million listeners that we have. <laughs>
2: I mean, <there> you go. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that or or maybe bad. the 10, I don't know that, that that might be part of it. So.
2: Right. And then there's, you know, there's other, there's other things to think about also as, as, you know, there's sort of the golden rule where um, you're doing this thing. If you step back, would you be okay if you knew that somebody did it to you? if somebody nudged this behavior and then, you know, thinking about the behavior itself, is it, is it at least neutral to good? Like, you know, if somebody takes this step that you're trying to nudge them for, is it in their best interest, really in their best interest, not, you know, your best interest and you're kind of making excuses. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So I think some of those high level questions are, are important. Um, to to ask yourself and maybe bring in, you know, a non-partial, an unpartial um, um, uh, person to kind of look at it also, so that you're not giving into your own biases.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really, really interesting part there, that idea of bringing somebody from the outside in, because we do get wrapped up. We get wrapped up in we're thinking that this is good, and you know Tim and I talked about you know the the most the the people that end up doing some of the most unethical things within organizations are the ones that have the strongest connection to that organization and because then that colors everything that they do and so they 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 look past some of these just you know miss uh, tiny things or larger things, because it's in the good of the company, and and they don't always think about that. So, bringing in that outside perspective, I think, is really wonderful for that. Agreed. Agreed. <clears throat> I was wondering if we could uh, switch over and talk
1: a little bit about your musical life, because uh, I I know that you are a fine fingerstyle guitarist. You've released a record. You've got a YouTube channel, um, and you have my uh, admiration and envy at times in, in listening to your recordings because you really got great technique. But what, uh, just out of curiosity, what's on your playlist these days? What it's COVID times, and you're you know decamped with your family in a pretty you know pretty uh, quarantined environment what are you
2: listening to Hmm, what am i listening to that's a good question so i have a 15 year old son who um you know i'll brag about and say is a better musician than me and a fantastic composer and i'm happy to see also has in my opinion great taste in music you know you're kind of worried (laughs) about about you know Pop stuff or whatever that might get played in the house, but he actually has awesome taste. So he's been playing a lot of stuff. Interestingly, um, even though he's only fifteen, he's really into '90s rock which I hadn't listened to, you know, frankly, since the 90s. So <laughs> it, it, it's kind of nice, you know, we've got like G- Green Day and Stone Temple Pilot and, you know, all, th- all these 90s bands cranking in the background. And um, um, and then the two of us actually get together and record some of that stuff together, which is which is a, a real- oh, that- a real delight for me.
0: That's really cool. The the ability to actually, you know, record with your 15 year old, my 14 year old, and me. I'm just sitting there going, "Yeah, that would never work." <laughs> 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 a, a because neither of us have real, Well, actually, Quinn is. He's he's pretty good. He he's been taking piano for a number of years, and he's pretty good. And he it's fun when you just listen to him, just kind of play. Not not. You know, doing any music, but kind of just composing on the fly, and he does a really good job there. But yeah, I, I don't have any musical talent. But even if we did, our musical tastes are so widely different that uh, we would never be able to to combine. So that's yeah.
2: nice. And then otherwise, you know, you mentioned I play I play um, uh, acoustic fingerstyle guitar, so I'm always listening to some of my heroes in in that genre one of whom i was gonna say which include who this is probably a long list local minnesotan who's you know one of the one of the uh uh trailblazers in the field which is which is leo Kotke. so i i'm I'm always listening to leo now and again and you know he's I, i can't remember what part of minnesota he's from but he's 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 one of our local local talents. But then there's great people like Tommy Emmanuel, who I saw that was actually my my last live concert that I went to before COVID that I saw over at the at the Dakota, who's amazing, amazing guitar player. Um, But there's 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 dozens of others that
1: yeah, Tommy Emmanuel just seems to be a guy who can just play anything. He he, he kills me that he, any task in front of him, any fingerstyle task, you know, come up with this or that or any style, uh, country, rock, blues, jazz. Just he just bounces between them so effortlessly, and and I think somebody should trip him and push him down the stairs because <laughs> <laughs> he's just too damn good. He sounds like fire.
2: Playing all at once. And the thing, the, the magic that he and, and all of these great fingerstyle guitar players have is the ability to somehow separate what your thumb and your fingers do from each other. So you can play rhythm with your thumb and play something completely different with your fingers, which I can kind of do sometimes if I'm not thinking too hard about it, but like the level to which they are able to make that separation, um, it just gives me a headache. <laughs> <laughs> I, can't, I can't do it nearly to that level. It's just amazing to me.
0: Uh, all right. A question from a non-musician here. When, when we asked in the speed round, the the difference between, do you prefer an E major or an E minor? And you went in, and you you described an E minor for the blues, but an E major for country. So help help a non musician understand why why the major chord for the country and why the minor chord for the blues kind of focus there.
2: Well, blues, um, you know, there's many aspects to blues, but one of them is this kind of flat third, which is this sad kind of resonant. I don't know, Tim, help me out. Like um, um, there's, there's, there's this, sad, Yeah. It, 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 I mean, the, the minor key is, is more, is sad, emotional. And one of the aspects of blues is to play like those flatted thirds and those other kind of, you know, kind of not dissonant notes, but these just kind of notes that just give you that feeling of, of emotion. Um, um, I don't know. I'm not. I'm not articulating this well. <laughs> well,
1: well <I'm, laughs> so I mean, as an example, like if you listen to "Sunshine of Your Love," Eric Clapton, right? That that lick emphasizes the that flatted third. You know that that is that's a way of really emphasizing the the angst in the, yep. in, the in the in the message. Can I, so, can I
2: show you instead of tell you?
1: Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That'd be fantastic. Let's, do that.
2: let's let's have a live performance here. This sounds great. Um this happens to be in D. So this is a D major. And if you think about the more country and, you know, that, that sort of major happy thing, it would be something like,
0: I'll fly I want, away. I want to yeah. slap my I want to slap my thigh and
2: just get going with that. yeah yep. <laughs> but then if you think about so this is the same key but if you play it bluesy you would do something like with the, with like a, a flatted third which would be
1: fantastic fantastic
2: yes you can hear the difference both in the same key but very different feels and it's really just you know the notes you play in the scale the feeling that you give to it but but in general the minor is the more bluesy the major is the more country happy upbeat thing
0: thank you for that. that that see see tim can talk about that for months on end and i i you know the demonstration just made it very clear for me. So thank you. <laughs> Best ever. Best ever, Jonathan. Thank you. That's fantastic. And,
1: and and with that, we want to thank you so, so very much for for being a great guest and for sharing your, your uh, user experience and non-user experience and potential user experience tips with us, <laughs> our listeners today. We really appreciate it.
2: My absolute pleasure. Thank you guys for having me.
0: Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learn with our discussion with Jonathan, have a free-flowing conversation, and talk about whatever else comes into our fumbling finger brains. <laughs> <laughs> fumbling fingers? He does not have fumbling fingers. No, we have fumbling oh, fingers oh, brains. Okay. You know. Okay. <laughs> you probably don't. I do. I I I man i just am amazed that you guys can actually do one thing with your left hand another thing with your right hand and it all makes beautiful music in the end because it's uh, kind of amazing to me too it really and drummers are even more
1: amazing for that matter because they are yeah Yeah. man that's just pretty phenomenal i mean that's really independent motion when you've got both feet doing different things and both hands doing different things that's like mind bending but that's it's all just and you know it's all crazy to me so (laughs) but speaking of experiences (laughs) and not drummers so how about if we start grooving with the question of what is an experience and can we design it
0: well the experience is is you know um it's a band. It was formed by Jimi Hendrix back <laughs> in the '60s. Pretty, pretty phenomenal band, too. Yeah, yeah it was. Yeah. Cool. I even know them. So there you yeah. go. No. So what was interesting for me on this was this idea, the concept um, that Jonathan brings up about that the experience is more than just the experience. That an actual experience includes the anticipatory aspect of it. What we think is going to happen, how we get excited about it, how we envision it it taking place, uh, all of those types of things, and then the remembered part of that experience as right. well, you know. Right. And and we've talked about this in in the past on the show in regards to uh, vacations, right? We have you have a vacation, which if you were designing it, the the experience that we typically think about designing. Is the vacation itself that week that you're going down to the Bahamas or where or to the cabin or wherever it is? But in reality, that vacation has those three parts as well. It's the anticipation of what is going to happen on the vacation, thinking through what all that looks like and getting excited about it. It's actually going on the vacation and doing whatever it is that you do. But then it's also this remembered aspect. What do you remember? And we talked about it from the perspective of going camping and um, all of the factors that have we've had in those where sometimes the experience itself is actually pretty crappy. But the remembered part, eh, it's, it actually takes on a whole different perspective and is, is actually pretty good, even though it rained or was cold or whatever else was going on.
1: Yeah, this, that is particularly interesting because using your camping experience, you anticipated it. You planned it. You looked forward to it. You, you, in the in the middle of the experience itself, um, it rained and was kind of crappy for everybody to be stuck in the rain for the, those days. But then the memory is such a uh, interesting and fragile thing, right? That wasn't wasn't a video replay of what happened. It was sort of a selective view of how much fun it was to sit in the tent and read Harry Potter to the kids.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: You know, um, so no one could have designed that experience for you right no one could no. have in, in its totality and i, and I love jonathan's um d- definition that it is the combination of these three things no one could have designed that in the way that it happened right but but, uh, but there are certain things that you that user designers, user experience designers, can certainly influence. I, I, I think, right? Um, we, you know, we've talked about the the way when you're in a in a wine shop and German music is playing, more German wine gets sold. So the experience is that more people are sort of open to, even if unconsciously, to buying German wine. And if French wine's played, then more French wine gets sold. So there is some aspect. Of the experience that is being that is influencing us,
0: that, that you're you're influencing, right? So that the designer that that by playing the German music, you're influencing that experience of the purchase of the German wine versus the French wine. If you yeah. if you had designed the French music going on, yeah. and I in, think that's in, a, gen- in general, right? Not not universally, but in general. No, you can't necessarily design the anticipatory component of it or the remembered component of that particular example but this is the piece that I think designers really need to understand whether it, whether you're a UX designer or whether you're just designing a corporate initiative or whether you're designing the dinner that you are trying to woo you know a potential you know uh, love interest in, right? There is an anticipatory component that you you set the stage. And so by setting the stage, you have to figure out how, how to set that stage appropriately in order to create the best experience possible. But you also have to think about what it is that is going to be remembered from this. And this is, again, taking some of the behavioral science principles that we talk about, the peak end rule. How are you ending the experience? What is that peak emotional moment that is going to be inside of this? How are you framing pieces? How are you getting people, are you you reminding people of the experience through reminders are various different pieces. So all of those factors come in and that's that I think is a really key piece of what Jonathan is bringing to the table here is look look beyond the 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 actual dinner experience. Look beyond the actual, you know, putting the earphones on and you're listening to music with a set of of Bose headphones or Beats or different pieces. Look beyond the actual experience of using a an interface on your web browser to the anticipatory part and the remembered part. That's fantastic. I, I'm going to
1: steal a line that you've used uh, in the past uh, about curating the elements, right? That are available to us, and ex- and then taking what you just said, expanding that beyond just what is the experience when we're in the app. Okay, so yeah. I'm I open up an app and a user designer might be thinking, okay, so what, how, how do we get them to go from A to B and then from B to C and, and, you know, how can we reduce friction? And those are good questions to ask. They're just not the whole story. And what Jonathan reminds us of is it's a bigger picture. What, what are people, what kind of baggage are they bringing to the table when they come to the app, when they open the app, where are they coming from?
0: Yeah. Right. Uh, which and, and then where are they going afterwards? What, which, what's the remembered self? Yeah, which gets into Cialdini's persuasion, right? Absolutely. It's this idea that, and priming in general, what comes in advance can influence what comes after. So so you go, well, the anticipatory, that's, that's one thing. But you can actually change how people experience uh, an experience. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. I tongue twister there the but this idea that you can prime people to be more appreciative of it or to notice certain aspects of it or as in the German or French music playing in a wine shop actually influence the behaviors that happen within that um, moment or that experience so those are all really key things to be thinking about. And as a designer, taking into consideration. So again, it's that curating of of the elements that go into an experience, all of that experience, if you think about it from Jonathan's perspective, which is way before to way after the actual experience itself.
1: Absolutely. Uh, you bring up Cialdini, and I'm so glad you did, because that was really fun to hear about Jonathan's experience with him and uh, how he talks. He even said, uh, to my delight, uh, Cialdini writes back. (laughs) And the next day I took him to lunch, it's like, yeah, he's a real human being. He's not just just an icon, which which I thought was pretty cool. But bringing up all those things was really important. And it also, it brought me back to an experience that I had in the uh, Sequoia National Forest, where I saw some some, uh, signs that said, said, uh, we are losing our precious resources to people who steal pine cones from the forest floor. So please don't steal pine cones. And- and Bob Cialdini actually did a study with the petrified forest on this very same issue where they had these signs that said, you know, don't be like other people who steal our, you know, steal the rocks because this is the museum, basically. This is the forest itself. So don't do this. And and it was horrible, right? Because they, they just thought by calling out the bad behavior that they would stop people from doing it. But it wasn't until they changed the messaging to like, 99% of all visitors don't steal petrified wood. Did people actually start to reduce their stealing? And I wish they would do that in other national forests like the Sequoia National Forest. It's like they could have learned. They could have learned from their national forest buddies. I don't know.
0: Well, and you know, what's interesting about that, and, and Cialdini talks about this, is look, you you are doing a couple different things by saying, hey. All these people, you know, all these other people are doing it. It's a social proof statement. It also is a scarcity aspect. Well, I better get my pine cone now because they're all going to be gone, <laughs> <gonna> be gone. <laughs> it, when I come back because all these other idiots right. are doing it. So I'm going di- to get mine. Versus, you know, doing the the alternative of saying, "Hey, that your pine cone that you are going to um, be like the rest of everybody else." The social proof is actually on the. The numbers the of people who are, are doing the right thing, which is an actually the, the fact mm-hmm. of the matter is, is yeah, pine cones might have been stolen, but the vast majority of people that go to Sequoia National Park don't take the pine cones. It's it's a select few. Yeah. Um so yeah, I mean those are those are the interesting pieces. And this is where behavioral science, I think, can be very impactful across a number of Uh, in just different situations, right? It's not just in consumer behavior at uh, the supermarket. It's not just in employee engagement initiatives. It is in our national park services. It's in government issue elements. It's across the board because it's all about human behavior. And that's really leads a, a major portion of, or fills a major portion of our waking lives. Actually, Absolutely. every single moment of our waking lives, constantly, constantly, consciously or unconsciously,
1: it's it's all there. Um, Kurt, what else did you want to groove on?
0: Well, you know, I think the the big piece is, and, and Jonathan brought this up, right? How do you know if an intervention that you're doing that is applying some of these behavioral science principles is an ethical um, intervention? And that's something that we've explored a ton but I really like Jonathan yeah. had yeah. a really clear look three rules to consider one one is it true so is it verifiable is it is it factual and he and he took these from from Cialdini um but you know is it true so if you say that the vast majority of people aren't taking pine cones if it's if that's not true, if more than 50% of people are actually picking up a pine cone, then you can't state <laughs> that, right? right? That isn't that's a bad, factual right. statement. So don't make shit up, right? Would okay. you mind and then then the second rule is like, would you mind if it were done to you? And yeah, the, like the, the, the golden the golden rule thing. Yeah. The golden rule. And then the third part is it really in the best interest of the other party? And he is talking about, you know, his work with PayPal and various different pieces. And yeah so if if people did this behavior that they want them to do not only does it serve the company well but it is you can actually point to a benefit that it does have for the people signing up on that.
1: Yeah. And there is, um, this kind of gets into nudges a little bit. We, uh, we have talked a little bit about the idea that to some degree, nudges can be moralizing. There can be a moral context to, to nudges and, and things like this. Um, I don't know how we escape that really, you know, but that's, that's just the way it is. I would, I would also want to add, we could add in one of Scott Jeffrey's uh, great, uh, ethical rules. Which would you mind if what you're doing ends up on the
0: front page of the New York Times? Yeah, that's that's that kind of uh, my oh crap, you know, moment. Right? Is is it an oh crap uh, moment that this was put on the front page of the New York Times, or is it a oh wow moment of having <laughs> on the front? It's like yes, I, we're on the front page of the New York Times. Isn't this awesome? Um, which is one that I've actually we've we've used that as part of looking at some incentives. And when you think and talking with executives about incentive design in some of the work that I've done, that's the question that gets asked. Particularly, uh, there's been a lot of uh, focus in on group travel and, and these, these high-end rewards oh, yeah. and various different pieces. And they're going, well, how would that look if it was, hey, company X? you know, sent 300 of its top performers to Hawaii at a cost of X thousands of dollars, does that look good, um, neutral, or negative, if it was put on the front page of the the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal? Well, and, and the fact that you and I have both had
1: clients that when they did those trips, they chose not to have any signage that advertised their company name that it was very discreet about what company was was putting these events on and i think it to some degree right there they're kind of sending they're sort of signaling we don't want this on the front page of the new york times
0: yeah so. but but and and you can then look at the alternative and go you know it how it gets framed can make a big difference and so again that front page new york article could be framed from an incentive perspective You know, big pharma spending your hard earned, you know, or charging exorbitant prices for their drugs to send, you know, people to Hawaii to party, or it could be uh, framed in another way of saying, you know, hard work pays off with big rewards for, you know, people, you know, making a difference in the world of uh, pharma. Yeah. Or, or another headline
1: could be top performers are rewarded uh, in order to en- continue to engage them uh, to do great work.
0: Yeah. yeah. So all three of those, they're going to have a different piece, which is maybe not so good about thinking about the headline on the front page of the New York Times as a good arbitrator because you could think of the different ways that that could be framed. But those are the pieces. So going back to the experience, right? What is what is the anticipatory component of that? What is the actual component of it? And what is the remembered component of it? Excellent, that's, that's fantastic. Okay, uh, hang on Groovers. We are gonna have a bonus track coming up in just a second. And, and listen to the great music that is going on in between here.
1: Hey Groovers, this is Tim with the bonus track and groove idea for the week. In our conversation with Jonathan, he asked us to consider something wonderfully philosophic. Can one human create an experience for another human? Disney hires what they call Imagineers, but not experience-ears for good reason. It's very difficult to imagine actually creating an experience for someone else. Jonathan brought the importance of the anticipation of the experience, the experience itself, and the memory of the experience as the three legs to the experiential tool. It makes sense to us. We know that the remembered self is one of the most important reasons that we do anything. How we'll remember it is important. He also brought up his meeting with Bob Cialdini, which we loved, and how Jonathan's work with Bob's crew brought powerful results to the initiatives they were working on at PayPal. It's always cool for Kurt and me to hear how nicely behavioral science and business results dovetail. And lastly, we got to hear Jonathan play guitar. His finger style abilities are very fine and that the part of the conversation really enriched my heart. It still does when I listen to the very bright tones of his instrument and how they flow into the microphone. It was really wonderful stuff. For your groove idea for the week, Kurt and I would like to ask you to be aware of your decision-making and to what degree your anticipated memories influence your choices. In other words, try to catch yourself wondering whether a decision you're going to make today will influence what will make you feel a certain way in the future. Will looking back on your decision make you feel good or bad? And how does that influence the way you decide right now? Well, that's it for another episode of Behavioral Grooves. Thanks for listening, and we hope that this week you go out and find your groove.